You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. We are just a couple of days away from the winter meetings, and I think that's when the winter is really going to get going. Today we're going to talk about two American League teams that are in kind of similar positions. They both have some of the game's most elite stars, both have a lot of holes to fill. They both have owners who are prone to making big splashes. They both have new general managers. They both have former ace pitchers trying to figure it out. Both teams are kind of in uncomfortable positions where they may not have enough to be favorites next year, but they can't really take a step back either. We are, if you haven't figured it out, talking about the Angels and the Tigers, and we're going to start in Los Angeles, where MLB.com's Angels beat writer Alden Gonzalez, whom I had the pleasure of sitting next to in the press box at the World Series in New York, will attempt to answer our first question. Alden, the Angels have the best player in baseball, perhaps the best player any of us will ever see in Mike Trout, and they've won zero playoff games in his four seasons. How is that possible? Oh, man, yeah. Um, You know, it's been... A lot of different things. I think uh, if you look at their payroll, uh, Mike, it's very top-heavy, obviously. All that money allocated to Albert Pools, all that money that was allocated to Josh Hamilton, which they're still paying the vast majority of to the Rangers for these next two years. Um, and it's just been a lack of depth. You know, when you're a team that spends so much on a couple of players and doesn't want to exceed the luxury tax threshold and kind of sees your farm system dry out over the years with the loss of first-round picks, with the trades, of some pretty good prospects, all of a sudden you run into a situation where you need your real high payroll guys to step up because you don't really have much else coming through the farm system. And, you know, Mike Trout has been otherworldly, but Albert Pujols hasn't given them elite production like they would have hoped for these first four years. Jared Weaver, who's I think now their third or fourth highest paid player, um, hasn't really, I mean, he's been in a steady decline as well. And, you know, it's just it's been hard to kind of supplement the roster because they their farm system has dried out so much over the years, like I mentioned, with the graduation players, with the loss of first-round picks, and they just don't have guys that are coming up through the system um, that are – they don't have enough players that are performing at the zero to three service time range making $500,000 that are just ready to fill in at different positions. So they've had to go through free agency to access a lot of their weakest spots, which is a very volatile place for any franchise to be in. They've gambled on some guys, and they haven't won. And, I mean, that's just what happens. That's what happens with these um, – it's kind of the constant evolution of these franchises where, you know, they get in this win-now mode, and then you see that eventually they hit a wall. And I'm not saying that the Angels have hit a wall, but you saw it happen to the Phillies. You saw it happen uh, a little bit with the Tigers this past season – when you're not getting these players, when you're not when you're not in that cycle of getting players up, graduating them up through the system and matriculating, matriculating them to the major leagues, it gets a little tough. And I think that's where the Angels find themselves. I mean, you look at you look at this offseason, Mike. I mean, they have they went into this offseason with up to five holes in their starting lineup, and at none of those positions can they count on a player coming up from AAA to fill it. They have to go through free agency now to get these guys. They have to go to free agency to sign a guy like Cliff Pennington. They're going to go through free agency to get a left fielder. They'd like to do it at third. They'd like to do it at second. But there's not enough room in the budget. And that's what that's what you run into when you don't have the prospects in your system. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right about left field because left field last year, uh, it wasn't just below average. It was, it was atrocious, really. They were the worst offensive left yeah. field in the majors. I think they had 12 or 13 different guys out there at various points. Uh, it was the worst left field collection in the history of the ball club offensively by weighted runs created plus. And, uh, you know, they've got Trout, they've got Cole Calhoun. That's two-thirds of a very good outfield. So I think we all agree they're going to get a left fielder. 
maybe, you know, a Cespedes fits or an Alex Gordon. What do you think about Jason Hayward? And I, I say that knowing that Jason Hayward fits on 30 teams in baseball. Like, every team wants a Jason Hayward. But he really, the more I think about it, he's a perfect fit because I think you're absolutely right. The farm system is thin. They're not going to get young help from within. And there's not a lot of guys out in the free agent market who are as young as he is. He's only 26, gets on base, uh, an elite defender with a, you know, a fly ball staff who, who puts a lot of balls in the air. He's kind of the perfect fit out there, wouldn't you think? I think so, Mike. Um, and, and, you know, going back to another point that you just touched on, the Angels have been so lucky to get Mike Trout and Cole Calhoun, not just because of the production they provide, but because they're young and because they had them when they were in that 0-3. to three. And there were so many years where they were giving you above-average production, making $500,000. And for the Angels, I think that's more valuable than any other team because they just don't get that enough. I, um, I do agree with you on Jason Hayward. Uh, I think if you look at what Billy Epler has done, so far, you know, getting a guy like uh, Andrelton Simmons, and then yesterday he signed, um, you know, a little-known guy named Rafael Ortega, but he's also a really good defender. It looks like he's really focusing on defense here, and, you know, as you know, Mike, you can't get better right-field defense than Jason Hayward. Um, the problem with Jason Hayward, and I think the problem a lot of teams are going fall, to fall into, is he is entering the free agent market at a very young age. And I wouldn't be surprised. As a matter of fact, I expect him to get a 10-year contract. And anytime you're getting out a 10-year contract, it gets really dicey. Obviously, it's better to give a 10-year contract to a guy like Jason Hayward than it was to give it to somebody like Albert Pujols, who's 31 years old, 25, for 10 years and $240 million. Um, But I agree with you completely on Jason Hayward. And, you know, I actually spoke to uh, Cole Calhoun about this yesterday. I asked, you know, They've been linked to Jason Hayward. How would you feel about moving from right field to left field, especially coming off a gold glove season? You know, and he he gave the answer that you would expect. He said that if they feel like this is something that makes us better, then I'm all for it. But, you know, it kind of gets a little tricky sometimes when you have guys moving positions. You know, players will tell you um, that the move from right field to left field is so much more difficult than people realize because – and one thing Calhoun was telling me was that everything that you do from right field as opposed to left field, everything you're taught is just backwards when you change from the other side of the field. Sometimes it could get a little tricky when you do stuff like that. I remember in 2013 when the Angels signed Josh Hamilton, they had two guys that were out of position in the outfield. They wanted to accommodate Peter Borges in center, so they moved Mike Trout to left. And then they had Josh Hamilton come in as a right fielder, which is a position that he had really never played and it just never really worked out that well. You saw Trout really struggle um, in terms of the metrics in left field. That may be a little bit beside the point when you're getting a guy like Jason Hayward. Um, I don't think that's going to be the front office's primary concern. I think the biggest concern is going to be length of contract. But, you know, when you compare Jason Hayward to the guy, to guys like Alex Gordon and Joanna Cespedes and Justin Upton, I mean, if I'm a team, I feel a lot better giving – max years to a guy like Jason Hayward than anybody else. Um, the only thing that I would say, though, about the Angels left field situation, I think they're going to get one of those four guys. I would, you know, I, I think that's where I would lean. But it's interesting because Alex Gordon also kind of fits for them, a left-handed hitter who gives you premium defense in left field, and he's going to be a lot cheaper than Jason Hayward, I would expect. And you want to assess this is another intriguing guy because he's not going to cost them drastic compensation. And for the Angels, giving up a first-round pick is very debilitating because they really need to rebuild stuff. So I think that's why that's where it gets really interesting. I think it's between those three guys right now. 
And I think each of them kind of brings something a little bit different. Yeah, I think you make a great point about not wanting to give up another first-round pick for Hayward. Um, but I guess, you know, the, the one thing he's got over Gordon is that he's, I believe, six years younger. And, you know, like we said, yeah. with this farm system, they absolutely need that. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned depth before, and I, I thought that was a really interesting point because I'm looking at this rotation right now for next year, and I can see six guys who are reasonable big league starters. You've got Richards and Heaney, sure. Santiago, Weaver, Wilson, and Shoemaker. Six guys who've got pretty good big league experience is a nice place to be in, but then I also look at that group of six, and I think maybe I actually only count on two of those guys, because a lot of them have had a lot of issues. Like, How do you think they feel about that rotation? Are they good with it, or is that a place they're going to upgrade? I think it's a place that in an ideal world, they would upgrade, but I don't think they can afford to right now. And you've seen how the market for starting pitching has already started to move. David Price is off the board. Jordan Zimmerman came off the board. It looks like Zach Krinke is going to choose between the Dodgers and Giants. The Angels haven't really been in on any of them. And I think it's because I think they went into the offseason knowing, okay, if there's one area of strength in our entire roster from the minor leagues on up, it's major league starting pitching depth. And I, and actually, and, and I agree with you that maybe you can only count on one or two of them, but I would say they have as, up to as many as eight major league quality starting pitchers going into next year. you got Tyler, Tyler Skaggs coming off Tommy John surgery. He could have a pretty good year because he had a lot of time to recover. And Nick Tropiano actually showed some pretty good things. Nick Tropiano came over in that trade for Hank Congo with the Astros last November. I think they have up to eight guys there. And I think, look, would they ideally get a top of the rotation Ace caliber guy and push everyone on down a spot. Absolutely, I just don't think it is within their means um, to do that this off season. I think right now their payroll, they're about I want to say twenty million dollars or so below the luxury tax threshold. That has basically been their spending limit the last couple of years. And you know, I keep, I keep wondering if Artie Moreno, their owner, um, who has been more than generous with the budget for the last like ten years. Um, is going to consent to exceeding that tax because the Angels can go over the luxury tax this offseason. And then next offseason, when they have guys like Jared Weaver and T.J. Wilson coming off the books, they could get back under it, and they're going to avoid all that escalator tax. But the fact that they haven't really been in on any of these premier uh, free agent starting pitchers, at least not yet, is kind of further indication that that's really not their priority right now. I think they're going to splurge on a left fielder, and I think they're going to eventually try to trade C.J. Wilson just to maybe save some money on that contract. They don't really need him for next year, and he's owed $20 million. i got to think that if they could find a team that could take 15 of that, maybe even $10 million of that, they're going to jump on that because they could use that money to upgrade a third base and second base. I think if you look at the rotation, the one guy that they have who really could step up and be that ace is Garrett Richards. Uh, and he basically was that ace in 2014 before he hurt his knee uh, in Fenway Park. And he came back last year and threw 207 innings, coming off the knee injury, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Wasn't quite as good. Strikeouts were down, walks were up, home runs were way up. Uh, but he's really been one of my favorite players of this first season of StatCast. And we actually named him a quote-unquote StatCast All-Star because he's got spin <laughs> rates that are off the chart. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put out some rankings here, and these are all with different you know minimums, so you can change it based on how many you know to qualify in the leaderboards. But he had the third highest spin rate for a slider, the number one for a curve, number one for two seamer, uh, and tenth overall for a four seamer. He's actually the only guy in baseball to average more than 3,000 RPMs on a pitch, which was his, his curveball wow. spin, which is pretty impressive. Um, and yeah. I'm wondering, you know, have you ever spoken to him about that or heard him talk about that? Does he know about this? Does he care about it, or is this just is this something that's natural to him? I actually brought it up to him, and he was actually pretty. He 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 was pretty intrigued by by the numbers. I mean, he knows he has a lot of movement, um, but he didn't know. 
I mean, it, it was. I think it was nice for, to contextualize it a little bit for him. He was actually pretty impressed by it. Um, you know what? The, the amazing thing, though, Mike, about Garrett Richards is that, you know, he throws most of his fastballs with a four-seam grip. And, you know, these pitchers, they throw, they throw the four-seamer because they want to get good velocity. And I think it's just, just his arm action creates this spin, creates this movement on his four-seam fastball that, that's really unrivaled. I think a lot of times pitch effects categorizes it as a two-seamer. But he's told me many times in the past that he very rarely deploys that two-seam grip on his fastball. It's usually four-seam fastballs that he's throwing, that they just have this crazy movement that a lot of the times he doesn't really know if it's going to have run, if it's going to cut the other way. He is, Mike, impossible to catch because that slider has so much depth, too. And, you know, a lot of the times I'm watching him, and he goes first time through the order, and it's pretty much all fastballs just fastballs to everybody first time through the order because they can't really figure it out. And look, he's a, this is not um, a stat cat stat, but last two years, um, Garrett Richards has thrown 39 wild pitches. The next guy up after that is Sonny Gray's at 28. <laughs> and that's not a, a bad sign for Garrett Richards. It just shows how impossible he is to catch with that fastball that moves so much and with that slider that has such crazy depth. I mean, it's so much fun to watch. Yeah, I swear I read somewhere, and I couldn't find it again, so maybe you can ask him about it next time you see him, is that he attributes all the movement and uh, the spin probably to the fact that he's got a particularly long middle finger on his pitching head. Uh, and that might be hearsay. I don't know if that's actually true or not. But uh, it, it's, it's fascinating. It would make a little bit of sense if the ball stays in contact with his with his hand, you know, a little bit longer than a normal pitcher would. Um, the Pedro Martinez effect. Yeah. Well, hey, anything that you can be compared to Pedro Martinez with as, right. a, as a pitcher, that's a good thing. Moving quickly to Jared Weaver. You know, obviously he's been around for a long time, and last year was not a great season for him. I looked this up right before. Uh, StatCast tracked 407 pitchers who threw at least 400 four-seam fastballs. Uh, the slowest one was R.A. Dickey, who's a knuckleballer. Second slowest was Mark Burley, who's about 75 years old and might retire. And the third slowest was Jared Weaver at just 85 yeah. miles an hour. So I, yeah. I, I almost think the fact that he, I know it wasn't a good season, but he managed to survive, you know, it says a little something about him because he doesn't have a particularly high or low spin rate. And we saw that Chris Young gets by with a slow fastball with a high spin rate. Jared Weaver's, Jared Weaver's is a little bit higher than average, but not that much. Do, do you think he's able to get through this next season with the way his velocity is trending? Um, in a word, no. <laughs> um, and I think he would tell you that. Um, I, look, it's a credit to Jared Weaver um, that he was able to be at least um, – somewhat effective for the Angels this year. He's a master at reading swing paths. He's a master of setting hitters up, and he still creates a lot of deception with that across-the-body delivery that he has. But, you know, you've seen the fastball velocity kind of drop each year a little bit, and that's, and it's for an obvious reason. It's because, you know, that, that same across-the-body delivery that creates so much deception on right-handed hitters also puts a lot of stress on the shoulder. And so it's just the gradual wear and tear, and it's taking off some velo, but you know, a lot of people were surprised that Weaver's fastball velocity dropped as much as it did from one year to the next because he had been sitting, you know, he got to 90 miles an hour and then he was in 87, 88 miles an hour for a couple of years. And, you know, even dating back to the last two months of the 2014 season, I mean, going into the, into the playoffs in October, he was feeling really good. He was throwing 87, 88, touching 89 a few times, and you saw him be effective. He doesn't need much more than that to be effective. It, it's when he gets into the... 84, 85, 82 sometimes, like he did so many times last year, that's when it just becomes so difficult for him. You saw left-handed hitters had a 777 OPS against them, um, the highest it had been in about six years, and that's, you know, that's evidence of a guy who just cannot fat run his fastball in on left-handed hitters because he doesn't have enough on it. But there are, there are a lot of people in the Angels that feel like 
Jared Weaver can get back to throwing his fastball at 87, 88 miles an hour. They see 84, 85 this year as sort of just a one-year blip that maybe he could get back to it. They feel like if he gets a little bit more strength in his core and in his chest, then maybe he could throw his fastball back to where it was a couple of years ago. He couldn't really do that this year. He had some injuries um, in his hip and in his shoulder, and he really couldn't strengthen his core. They feel like if he could do that, he can get back to being that guy. And, and Mike, it's interesting what you point out about spin rate because, I mean, it's true. Um, Weaver doesn't throw pitches with a lot of movement. He's kind of the anti-Garrett Richards. He, he relies on changing speeds. And, you know, when he was at his best, he was giving you that, that fastball at 90 miles an hour, and he was giving you a change at about 78. So when you have a 12-mile-an-hour difference like that, it's really keeping hitters off balance. The one thing that we did see this year, and I feel like, I don't know if the stats back me up on this, but I feel like he started relying on this 65-mile-an-hour curveball, which is just so much fun to watch, <laughs> loading curveball just coming out of his hand. And that became the pitch that kind of created that deception off his fastball. He went to that a lot this year, but... He can't. I don't feel like he can continue to survive at 84, but there are some people in the Angels that feel like he can get back to 87, 88. If he does that, he could have a solid year. We'll see. I mean, this is obviously this is going to be the last year of his contract, so this is a really important year for Jared. Alden, final question for you. We've got about 60 seconds left. Uh, Billy Epler, obviously the new general manager, but it's not just him. You know, Scott Service left to manage the Mariners. Matt Klentek left to be the general manager in Philadelphia. Uh, Tim Bogar also went to Seattle. It's like an entirely new front office they've got going on there. Uh, and I'm interested to know, you know, have you had a chance to talk to Billy Epler or any of the new guys, and what kind of change in outlook have they had, particularly in analytics? You know what, I think, I th you know, it's interesting because I feel like Jerry Depoto, a former player, um, was maybe a little bit more analytically inclined um, than Billy Epler is. And this is not a knock on Billy Epler. I think Billy Epler is a good balance. That's what I keep hearing from everybody else, that he's a balance. And I know everybody says that about GM, but a lot of people I've spoken to, like veterans in the game and even, you know, nuanced analytics guys, believe he has a good balance for valuing the scouting and experience in the game and also turning to analytics. Um, I I'm not sure... I don't think we have a big enough sample size yet to see how much the Angels are going to use analytics this year, but I think the entire makeup of the front office is going to be different, the way it's structured. Um, Billy Epler likes to call it um, the office of the GM. He likes to – he relies on input from a lot of different people. There's like five or six people within the front office staff that kind of – that he says kind of everybody just makes decisions together. And I think Mike Sosha has been included in a lot of that decision-making so far this year. Um, especially when it comes to putting together a coaching staff, but I also think in terms of free agency and trades and things like that. I think Billy Upper's main task early on in his um, stint as GM is to kind of break down some of the barriers that were created over these last three or four years when Jerry was there. I don't know whose fault it was that those barriers even existed. Some people would say it was Socha's fault. Some people would say it was the Potos. But Billy Upper's main goal when he steps into the GM is kind of to break down some of the walls. And, I think hiring Ron Renicky, bringing Bud Black into his front office, going through the coaching staff changes with Mike Sosha, I think he's done a lot of good in these first two months. Alden, great stuff. Follow uh, Alden Gonzalez, A-L-D-E-N underscore Gonzalez on Twitter. Read him at MLB.com and Angels.com. The Angels are going to be a really fascinating team, I think, this offseason. Alden, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Mike. Back on the MLB.com StatCast podcast, I'm Mike Petriello. Joining me now, MLB.com Tigers beat writer Jason Beck. Tigers are in a really interesting position, I think. They won four straight American League Central titles, uh, sunk to fifth place last year, 
core of the team, Cabrera, Verlander, Kinsler, Sanchez, Martinez, all 32 plus. So they went out and got Jordan Zimmerman. They traded for Cameron Mabin. They got Francisco Rodriguez. MLB.com's Richard Justice said if they're in, they have to be all in. They can't stop spending now. Fangraph's Dave Cameron said the same thing. So the question for you, Jason, is number one, do you agree? And number two, will that spending actually happen from the team? Uh, I can I can see the point where the, if you're going to go this far in, the, it makes But at the same time, the sense I'm getting from the Tigers is that they're trying to make decisions not just for now but for the future. Like they're they're trying to spend money while making good baseball decisions. So I, I don't expect like a huge spending spree. I, I'd still be surprised like if that happened. Uh, I don't think spending more money than expected on Germans necessarily a sign on that. I know uh, Phillips said basically money is no object, but at the same time, we're seeing signs that he's putting basically all his trust in uh, Al Avila and uh, the baseball operations guys to make the decisions, and basically he's given the financial support behind that. And what uh, Al and the rest of the guys have been saying so far is that they're trying to preserve as much of that young prospect core as they can because they want to be able to build around that and that they anticipate that some of those young guys are going to be counted on to make contributions, not just down the road, but also this coming season. And uh, you can easily see scenario where Daniel Norris is probably going to be counted on to take a step up in workload in that rotation. And Michael Fulmer if he doesn't win a rotation spot, which uh, seems like he's a long shot for, could end up being a pretty significant contributor in the bullpen this coming season. Yeah, really, if they're going to improve, I think a lot of it has to be they need the guys who maybe stumbled last year to take a step forward. Uh, and that probably starts with Justin Verlander, who was once the best pitcher in baseball and then he suffered through a, a rough year or two. Had a little bit of a resurgence last year. and he started the season late. Got off to a rough start. Uh, th- these numbers, I think, are interesting. His first nine starts, he had a 5.05 ERA. His last 11 starts, he had a 2.12 ERA. Uh, and when you look at some of the things that changed, his curveball in particular, uh, his spin rate added 120 RPM, but it was slightly slower, and uh, that, that helped double his K rate. And I'm wondering if you think that, that the difference between the, the fastball and the curveball or any other changes he might have made you know, really made that difference for him because the guy down the stretch looked pretty close to vintage Verlander. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily just the traditional, you know, I got my fastball back type resurgence. I, I think that did help. You, you saw a little bit more uh, during the years where, you know, the velocity came back, but it was a little bit of an easier delivery. He was able to get a little bit more motion on that fastball, uh, made, made some mechanical tweaks. He's always been super secretive about the mechanical tweaks he makes. So it's hard to tell specifically what he got into there. Hopefully he'll expound upon that a little bit here as time goes on and he gets more comfortable with it. Uh, the curveball got its bite back. Uh, I, I saw a lot more of the curveball we remember from 2011, that sharp breaking, um, sometimes hard curveball that you could throw anywhere from the upper 70s into like 82, 83 mile, miles an hour. And when he would throw at 82, 83 with that hard break, those were the games you kind of sensed that uh, something special could happen. Um, 
he's got a lot more trust in the slider than I think he did a couple of years ago or even last year. He's been able to get that down a little bit more consistent now. Changeup's always been there. Uh, he hasn't tinkered with a whole lot of new stuff yet. You know, we're not necessarily seeing like the consumer we've all expected him to uh, develop here down the road. That's going to be something that's worth following, I, I think, because with the new pitching coach coming in with Rich Doobie, yeah, I, I think if he can earn Verlander's trust, you could see him work on that transition that eventually Verlander's going to have to make from that young, hard-throwing pitcher into that veteran guy who relies more on the next. I think you've seen the beginning stages of that while still having some velocity there. I think that's going to have to continue here if he can if he's going to sustain that success. And Dooley having worked with Roy Holiday during the latter half of his career, I think has a lot of experience uh, helping pitchers through that. Verlander had some really interesting splits last year, and the the data actually goes against what I would expect here. So if you look at his uh, first three innings, he was outstanding: 150 ERA, 470 uh, OPS against, which is which is excellent. Uh, innings four through six, 550 ERA, 775 OPS, and so that makes sense a little bit because we we've often seen that pitchers are more effective the first time through the lineup than the second time through. So that I get, but. He didn't actually throw softer. He was throwing harder, about a, a mile and a half harder for innings four through six. His spin rate was up, uh, and yet he was getting hit harder. And I, I don't know that I have an answer for that, and I, I don't expect you to have an answer for that off the top of your head, but I, I found that fascinating. I wonder if that's a, a change in approach for him as he goes deeper in a game, you know, relying on a different pick, pitch mixture. Uh, anything that stood out to you about that? Well, I, I know the track record was very lengthy. Even last year, when, when things would go well, before he really got it together, and certainly during the struggles, his default mode when he would get into a jam tended to be pumping fastballs. And while he would have the velocity on it last year, you, know, you might tend to see more straight fastballs, fastballs without necessarily a whole lot of movement. And even when he did have movement, I think eventually once he got in that pattern, hitters were a little bit better on picking up that fastball being able to do something with it. Uh, I think when Verlander is at his best is when he trusts his secondary stuff when he gets into that jam. Uh, you know, it's, it takes a lot of faith for a guy to be able to drop a curveball in when he's in a jam and he absolutely needs to make a pitch to stay on the, on the um, higher leverage side of that ball game. Uh, you saw a little bit more of that from Verlander. I think when you see him doing that, that's a real good sign of where his confidence is at. More often you see you know, primarily fastball, but the secondary pitch of choice, that, if I remember right, that he would tend to mix in there would be the slider just because it's a little bit of a harder pitch and he feels like he, he doesn't necessarily get hurt on it as often if he doesn't execute it perfectly. Well, maybe that explains the the higher velocity. If, as you say, he was trying to really reach back and rely on that fastball, uh, and hitters kind of knew that was coming and hit it all around the park, uh, that would certainly explain that. I want to move on for a second to Victor Martinez, um, 37 later this month, signed for three more years. He's really coming off the worst year of his career. I mean, he was worth negative two wins above replacement. For a guy who is really well known for making contact, he had his highest strikeout percentage since 2009. You know, that's, that is a contract that's not going away, and that's a player they really need more production from. When you see Victor Martinez, is it just injuries, or do you really think this is the beginning of the end for him? Well, I think a lot of it's injuries. 
he couldn't put a whole lot of power behind him. He didn't have his legs under him really all year, even when he was relatively healthy. And again, that's, it's a relative term for what he was, you know, this past season. But he, even when he was out there, you didn't see that power. And I think it was unrealistic to, to expect him to repeat the same, anywhere near the same power numbers he had in 2014. I, I think 2014, given his age right now, is going to go down as more of an anomaly from a power standpoint. But I, I think his track record shows he can be a very productive run producer. Again, it's kind of redundant term, but a, a very effective run producer without necessarily the power in his back. This is a guy who drove in a ton of runs a few years ago just on singles. If you can get singles and doubles out of him and get him to be able to have that same back speed that he had before, even anywhere close, I think you've got a pretty good hitter there and a guy who could effectively protect Miguel Cabrera and J.D. Martinez in the lineup. Uh, is he necessarily that that uh, big weapon in the cleanup spot? You know, time will tell. I think if it, if he is, you know, those days are going to be dwindling, and you're going to see more of a transition where J.D. Martinez becomes more of that featured hitter in the heart of the order with Victor Martinez supporting him. But given... Victor's experience, and given what he's shown he's been able to do with or without power, I would like to think that he's got a bounce back in him where he can be that uh, a good RBI guy without necessarily being that big home run guy that he was. I think the Tigers, uh, moving to fielding for a second, they still have a reputation as a poor defensive team, and I, I think a lot of that comes from the years when they had Prince Fielder at first and Miguel Cabrera at third. Uh, I was surprised to see that's actually not really true. They were a pretty solid defensive team last year, um, you know, ranked in the, the upper third, I think, in most of the advanced defensive stats. stats. Uh, when you look at third base and you see Nick Castellanos, he was still below average. He was a negative nine defensive run saved, but that was up from negative 30. So even though it's below average, it's still a huge step up. But he had a, a kind of an interesting season. He's a below average hitter. He's been a replacement level player, but he's still not even 24. Uh, and if you look at his first half versus his second half, uh, he went up 40 points in, in weighted runs created plus. So he was 25% below average in the first half, 16% above average in the second half. And a lot of that came from improved plate discipline. He just stopped swinging as many balls, to, to put it simply. Uh, it, what do you what do you make when you look at him? He's so young, but he also hasn't had a lot of success. I think they're going to go with him for another year because they have to. But do you see him taking that step forward? Yeah, I think you saw as the year went on a kid who was starting to take that learning curve. Uh, it came a little bit slower for him than I think a lot of us expected. He had a lot of pressure on him when he came in, and I think he felt that, especially early uh, this past season, as the uh, offense was struggling without Victor Martinez, and they were having to count on some other guys to pick up some of the slack, even though Nick wasn't hitting in that hard order. Um, but he, he got a little bit more of an appreciation of how pitchers were trying to get him out and how he needed to react to those guys. And I think part of that simple experience, uh, you know, being able to, to see these guys time and again, and I think another part of it was just being able to work with uh, some of the guys around him, taking lessons from, uh, you know, watching what Miguel Cabrera does, watching what J.D. Martinez, Victor Martinez do. Uh, you know, it, it's hard not to learn from those guys by watching. 
It took a while, but, but you saw him kind of do some. He's a, a better pure hitter than I think he get cre- gets credit for. At least he has the the components to be that type of hitter. He can take a ball to the opposite field and, and hit it with some pretty good line drive authority. Not that J.D. Martinez or, or Miguel Cabrera authority, but the type where he can slash the gaps or get some doubles even with below average foot speed and, and be able to uh, force hitters to or force pitchers to, to pitch him honestly. Uh, I think you'll see him continue to, to make that transition. I think he's got a, a good season ahead of him, maybe not an elite season or anything like that, but I think you're going to start to see him here start to emerge as a guy you can count on for some offensive production better than what you would expect from the bottom third of the order, assuming that's where he hits. Uh, defensively, I think to some degree he he is who he is. He's got to do better, I think, at learning hitters and learning the tendencies. It, it's something that the good third baseman, because it's such a quick reaction position, know how to position themselves against the hitter and know what to look for on certain pitches. And I think uh, that's going to be the big step from. I remember Brandon Inge going through that process when he moved from catcher to third base about, what, 10 years ago now, I guess it would have been. Um, you know, that's the learning process he needs to make there. He's never going to be that quick-footed third baseman, but if he can position himself and learn to anticipate where he's going to have to field the ball, I think he, he can be a guy who, who can get you acceptable defense at third base as long as you have that above-average shortstop next to him. It's been a long time since I thought about Brandon Inge, but I'm glad you brought him up. He was, <laughs> he was always one of my favorite players to watch, uh, especially on some of those teams that, you know, that, that weren't maybe so great back you know, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, you wrote a story a couple weeks ago. It was uh, explaining some of the changes in the front office and not just the new general manager, obviously, but it was about uh, changes in the analytics department. So Detroit hired uh, Jay Satori, who, who was formerly an assistant general manager for the Blue Jays, but actually worked for Apple for the last couple of years uh, and three or four other uh, new members of that team. And so I'm curious, is your take on that? Is that just them beefing up the numbers uh, staffing-wise, or is that kind of a change in approach with the quote-unquote new front office? I think it's a slight change of approach. I don't think it's a dramatic shift in thinking, but it's an acknowledgement that they need to be more aware of the numbers and they need to incorporate them more into what they're trying to do, especially when they get to a point where they're trying to find value on the, on the uh, free agent market and in potential trades, looking for market inefficiencies, looking for tendencies where, where maybe some other clubs might miss them. I think it played a little bit of a role in the uh, Zimmerman signing. I think that type of thinking uh, also played some roles in uh, what they expect out of Francisco Rodriguez. Um, They had a chance to get some bigger name closers out there. They didn't want to give up those big prospects, so they were looking for who they could get for a more reasonable price, who could be, in their eyes, a guy you could count on to get three outs in the ninth inning. And they had to decide whether K-Rod, despite the drop in velocity and really a, a dramatic change in pitching style, could be somebody who they could – and they liked what they saw in the numbers there. Um, the big thing, though, you know, they built out the department, but they were starting from a very low point, especially compared to other teams. 
They also built out their scouting department. They added, uh, I think, three, at least three major league scouts to uh, to be able to look more in depth on teams. Uh, you know, they're not necessarily going to do a ton more advanced scouting, but what I anticipate happening is that with more scouts look being responsible for fewer teams, they can go more in depth on farm systems, have a little bit more of a background on on some of these minor league systems and know uh, what they're going to be uh, looking at and have a working knowledge of what they might be able to get, um, you know, in trades, in six-year free agent signings, and things like that, trying to find value um, in working in tandem, obviously, with the analytics. And they also expanded the the player development budget. Um, When Mike Ilch talked about money not being an object and being able to spend more, it wasn't just on players. He spent more on the organization and the system since Alavilo took over than he did really in several years. In some areas, they were catching up, and in some areas, they were trying to get an edge. But I think it's a larger theme with this team right now. That's a really interesting outlook. Uh, and Jason, now that you've given me a lot of intelligent answers to real baseball questions, I promised you I'd finish on something really ridiculous. So when I have guests on the show, I do a little bit of research on them. And what I do sometimes is I look up at, there's an app where you can see what a person's first tweet was. Uh, and most people, it's really boring. It's I made it on Twitter and I'm doing this, whatever. Your tweet is actually stellar from March 2009. Do you have any idea what your first tweet on Twitter ever was? Was that the, was that from like one of those World Baseball Classic warm-up games or something? Uh, I couldn't tell or... where, where it was, but I, I'll tell you what it says. Eating a Venezuelan breakfast called a cachito, which I probably did not pronounce correctly, it's kind of like a ham and cheese croissant, delicious. That was your, your uh, debut on the world of Twitter, and I looked it up, and it that does look delicious. That was my debut tweet? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I remember that day because it was, uh, you know, it was one of those uh, World Baseball Classic exhibitions. The Venezuelan national team came in and they were playing a uh, basically a spring training exhibition against uh, what was left of the Tigers spring training team with all the Venezuelans over on the other side. And uh, so some, somebody brought in a Venezuelan food truck <laughs> and uh, they, they were selling a traditional Venezuelan cuisine downstairs, basically right outside the clubhouse. I think there were even some players who partook in that. And so we brought some up, and, and it was uh, it was tremendous. And uh, I, I think that's what that came from. I think I was remarking about how good a food it was, and, uh, and just kind of surprised. Jason, I think uh, it, that was uh, when you start on Twitter in spring training, and you've got so much, I guess, boredom and or time to kill. I, I think. Uh, I think it lends itself to some weird tweets. I, I respect that you gave me like a, a well-thought-out answer to just a really dumb question. So I, I appreciate that. Jason Beck, MLB.com, Tigers beat reporter. Follow him at Beck Jason for all the latest Tigers news. Jason, really appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks for having me on. This has been the latest edition of the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. Thanks to my guests, Jason Beck and Alden Gonzalez, both of MLB.com. We will talk to you next week.